0: It ne- it never that that school I remember it just like never stops. Like you get up at six o'clock in the morning and you keep moving until you know six seven eight o'clock. It, and then when you're at Hell Week, you just keep moving, keep going, keep going, keep keep one foot in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: when does this thing stop? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a grinder, yeah. Yeah. release yeah. you take off the Freshman, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to have you on here. You have quite a unique background. We're gonna talk about that today. Um, yeah. again, this is one of those there's probably not a whole lot of flying involved in it, but you're your story to me is pretty incredible. Uh, but I want to I kick it over to you real quick. And if you give the you know 60 to 90 second elevator pitch, a little bit about your background and then what you're doing today, and then we'll, we'll jump into it, man. Yeah,
0: man. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast, first of all. But uh, um, long time coming, right? Yeah, well,
1: uh, yeah, with well, this uh, from back in October, right? Met at the Guns Gary Memorial Golf Foundation. That's tournament, right. So yeah,
0: that's right. We've we been um, this. Um, Let's see, man, I, I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, born and raised. Um sorry, my son, my son is coming in here. <laughs> What's up, bud? Um, yeah, look at that. Say
1: hey. Made it to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he made it.
0: <laughs> um and um I went off to I was a swimmer. That was a pretty good swimmer back in the day, and um I ended up going oh. um went to college went to unc my first year and then and then transferred over to university of Arizona and swam there and um finished with a, an engineering degree and i had i had some i had some hopes of uh swimming for the olympics you know and um uh, made it to the trials and and all that other stuff and, uh, and missed it by two lines up a second so that kind of ended my swimming career and then um uh with an engineering degree i, I went and worked uh Went and worked for uh, Boeing for a little bit, and then um, then I joined the Navy in 2004. So this is just right after, kind of like 9/11. I'd been thinking about it, and then um, I was like, "Man, how do, how do I best like serve my country?" You know what I mean? In where I was at uh, as an engineer, I was not having was not like just zero job satisfaction there. So, what,
1: what were um, you doing for Boeing? What engineering specifically?
0: I was a, a, research and design engineer for the,
1: FD. okay.
0: Yeah. So this is way back in the day when it was in its, like, kind of its infancy.
1: Yeah. It was a
0: contract race the U.S. government put up for Lockheed Martin and Boeing, and obviously Lockheed Martin ended up getting that contract. And, um, then it was time for me to move on because they wanted to move, me, me to move to, um, SeaTac over the Seattle area, and I didn't want to do that, so. Joined the Navy, two thousand four, um, with a with a SEAL contract. Went to, to Buds, didn't make it through Buds, and then I got shipped off to um, first Marine Division as a corpsman. Okay. And uh, I did I did some deployments there. I did uh, uh, I deployed with one five, and then um, first Recon Battalion, first force time um three times and then um i saw kind of saw the writing on the wall as a as a recon corpsman i was like i need to go somewhere else where i can be operation for the rest of my career so um 2009 i got out of the navy and the next day i was in the army <laughs> and switched over to becoming uh an 18 series guy uh, a green beret uh, special forces guy so um went through the q course and Went through um, 18 Delta school, so I became an 18 Delta. Got assigned to third group. I was there for about three and a half, almost four years, and then I kind of got the tap on the shoulder and um, to go over to Delta Force so of the unit over at Fort Bragg. And um, so I went over there as a uh, direct support medic and um, finished my time out there in 2020 and. Um, a couple of things happened in between there where, oh, they were like, Hey man, you're, you had 16 years or it was like 15 and a half or 16 years. Um, the guys were like, just, just stick it out, stick it out. You got five more years. And I said, no, I don't have have a daughter. I don't even know. Um, I've had some like pretty traumatic things happen to me and I was, and I wanted to play golf for a living. That was always something I wanted to do. And it was kind of like, I was lifting and shifting fire already. So. I didn't want my mind somewhere else, especially in that kind of environment that the unit has where it's, it's, it's very focused on that job. And, um, I, I was going to do a disservice to those guys, you know, if I, if my head was somewhere else. So, um, I decided to leave in 2020, like it was kind of crazy. You know, I got out March one, 2020 and then COVID hit. <laughs> right. So here, I'm going to go play fresh professional golf. And then like the whole world shut um, which is kind of a blessing in disguise, man. Like, I got to hang out with family a bunch. I got to practice a bunch. You know, get kind of prepared for for what I'm I was about to do, and um, and then we found ourselves here in Saint Simons Island, uh, moved from North Carolina to Saint Simons uh, that same year, at the end of the year in December. So, um, it, you know, kind of a kind of a blessing in disguise, It was it was cool.
1: Lot to unpack there. I'm gonna even I'm gonna pick up almost where you left off there, the end with COVID, because I was getting out of active duty twenty nineteen and you know, I got the transition sucked for me. I was just talking to a guy this other day, like I don't know how it was for you, but getting out, there's so much there's so many unknowns. You're trying to figure out like where you're gonna live, how you're gonna pay the bills, all these things. And had I slipped like seven months later, like I had several buddies who were either retiring or getting out in that February March time frame. And then yeah. the world shut down, they had no job. They were scrambling, trying to get back into the reserves or active duty. Like it was a crappy yeah. time. I think some, you know, it obviously worked out for, for all, for all of them. And I think probably today people would say, Hey, as a blessing in the kind of like you were, they were able to get a job, pay the bills. They got a lot of family time and things like that. But that was a really crappy time period, especially to be separating. And you, you yeah. separated, you didn't retire. No, I, I, separated.
0: Yep. Yeah. I ETSed in, with 16 years on the books. Um, and you know, going back to 2020, uh, I, you know, I realized, you know, what's funny is when you're in the military, everything's kind of like cookie cutter, you know, right. You get, you know, you, you, get your paycheck, you have a chow hall, you have this, you have that, anything you need that they get it to you. And then when, when you get out, you're like, holy, holy cow. Like I haven't, like all that support underneath you is gone. But you realize that all that support um that that was underneath you, um, I don't wanna say that it was it's just kind of fluff, but the thing is is like you're the one that's creating whatever your situation is, right? So yes. um, you know, it took me a little while to kind of figure that one out. Um but I already had like a already, you know, I still had a c- clear, concise goal of what I wanted to do. So whether it was now or later, it doesn't really matter. I mean, my sister had said it really, really well years ago, and this goes back to when I got into the army. So, you know, for some reason that J-pass people don't talk, you know, like your secret interim and secret stuff. Yeah. So when you have a secret in the Navy, it doesn't mean you have a secret in the army, right? So I got shipped to Fort Sill. Uh, at warrior trans- transition course right so we go to this stupid course and to be an army soldier and uh and uh they're like hey you got an 18 x-ray contract but we can't ship you off because you don't have you don't have clearance and i was like well i had a clearance in the navy here and took them two months to like push a button to be like oh look at that you know surprise and my i was talking to my sister and she goes you know what it really is two months? What's a year in your whole lifespan? You know what I mean. It's really a drop in the bucket, and how you spend that time is the most important thing, right? And that's that was one thing that kind of stuck with me as, as far as like as COVID is concerned and all that other stuff. Um, world shutting down. That was an opportunity for me to kind of reconnect with my wife, my my daughter. My son was being born in May of that year. You know what I mean? The, the little dude that was just up here. Yeah. You know, I mean? so. <laughs> um it was it was good it was a it it was probably a, a, the best thing that could have happened for me and my family yeah yeah
1: that's awesome to hear and that's one of those things too you can't read the label from inside the jar i think mace said that and it's it's tough to sometimes remove yourself from the weeds and get the 50 60, foot view especially as the chapter's being written right like you don't necessarily know how it's going to end and there's a lot of turmoil. It's funny that you mentioned, you know, like J pass and like all these kind of inefficiencies <laughs> that go back and forth. You're like, you would think this would happen. And this would be automatic. I, I move reserve jobs. That is the story is like, so, you know, the air force for 16 years has had all like it has paid the same bank account. Right. There's been no change. I'm right. in the reserves and I have to move jobs. And you know, naturally it's a hundred page checklist all this information already exists in multiple databases throughout the entire air force which you know is a pain for me to get access to but right. personnel have access to and still pay they're like hey we need your bank account information I'm like just keep paying the same one no change like yep. no sir we got you have to fill out this form get it signed get it notarized unbelievable you're like, and you're like how how is this even yeah possible i dude <laughs> i have a i have a tremendous amount of respect for you uh, exiting at like that 16-year point because I know that was not an easy decision because uh, everyone's like, dude, you just got four more years, and you get a pension, four yeah. more years. But yeah. your story, at least on the Air Force side, um, I think is more and more common where guys are punching at the 15-, 16-year point, which would have been unheard of 10-, 15 years ago. Now, some of those guys continue on. They go in the reserves and get a reserve retirement you know, mm-hmm. at age 60. That's, yeah. not an easy, that's not an easy decision to make prioritizing your family and like, I love what you said, like lifting, lifting and shifting fires. What uh, the, the platitude there was? Yeah. 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 Not, not an easy thing to do, but you already had a goal set and uh, pressing out forward, which is golf. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but dude, I a tremendous amount of respect for doing that. Not, not an easy thing to do. And I'm glad it's worked out. I'm glad we were able to connect. And here we are today doing a podcast. Absolutely,
0: Here we are, man. I appreciate. back
1: so, it backing all the way up. Uh, so, Missed the Olympics just by a couple hundredths of a second, which is wild to me. Jump into engineering, and you mentioned, hey, you want to serve your country. What was some of the decision-making process? Like, what drove you to the Navy? You enlisted in the Navy, correct? Yeah. So, like, what was that like? What was the decision? What was going on in your mind in that time frame that ultimately ended up putting you into a sailor's uniform? So,
0: um, there wasn't much information about the army or even in the air force, you know, like the combat controllers and PJs. But I knew I wanted to do something in special operations. Um, You know, like I'm like, I'm like the product of the eighties dude. So, you know, like predator (laughs) commando. I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. Uh, uh, What was it? executive decision? Like, Oh oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, Oh, like, you know, Navy SEALs, right. Charlie Sheen, you know? So, all I knew, I didn't know anything about green beanies. I had no idea, right? I didn't know about rangers. I thought they were just infantry. Um, And so I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to special operations, the ticket, the hot ticket in town has got to be the Navy SEALs. You know what I mean? Because they had, and that's when I started to get in the movies. Like there was documentaries about it, you know, about Bud's classes. I started reading like the Dick Marcinko books and I read everything about it and decided, okay, need, the need, needy seals is what I want to do. Thank God it didn't become a Navy seal. <laughs> that's another, that's for another time in the podcast. But, um, uh, but, uh, so, you know, and I was a swimmer, so I was like, yeah, water's easy, right? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And so I, I, so that's how, that's how that all got going.
1: Isn't executive decision man? That's a throwback. I think I probably watched that movie a hundred times. And have, know, you right? see, have you seen that recently? How cheesy and like just how terrible it is. Like F one seventeen pulling up underneath Air Force One, like unloading yeah. a special with, ops team with a boom <laughs>
0: yeah. coming out of the top of it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cheesy, but uh,
1: back then you're like, whoa, look at that! Right? This so, is awesome. Yeah, just don't let get, the seal break on the. The connection yeah. between the F one seventeen and Air Force One.
0: Yeah, we're not going to make it. You are.
1: And then he shuts <laughs> <them>. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh, right? it's such a bad, it's such a bad movie, man. But I watched it, yeah, hundreds of times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's and so, um, yeah, I was just start for
0: information, and that, that seemed to be the place to place to be, you know. And and um, yeah, that that was that was decision. And so b- back then you know, uh, the seal rating, the SO rating wasn't, uh, wasn't even around. So you had to, you had to pick like your, your basically your NEC or MOS. And, um, I had a, I had a great guy. His name is, uh, Dennis Ketchum, buddy Ketchum. If he's listening to this man, shout out to him, but he was my Navy seal recruiter. Okay. And, um, yeah, he was a seal. This is, um, I had moved back from Tucson, Arizona to Massachusetts after quitting Boeing. And, um, he's like, all right, so you want to do something? He takes me down to get the ASVAB done. He's like, oh shit, you scored a 99, which I didn't know. I was like, is that good? He's like that you could do whatever you want in the Navy. Right. And I said, okay, well, I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll become a corpsman, which is like, you know, like Navy medic, whatever, you know what I mean? It seemed like I'm kind of my a little bit sciencey, a little nerdish, like I am. So, um, and uh, so you know, off to Great Lakes and in, in in the core school, and I reported I reported to I reported the buds in late 2004. All right, yeah. I kind of cruise, I cruise through boot camp easy, cruise, and then I went to core school, and it was like a self. They did a they did a pilot program where you just <laughs> basically clicked. Slideshows and then took a test, and um, here's some combat gauze and a sucking yeah, chest some, wound. This yeah, yeah you're good I, to go. Yeah, exactly. And uh, well, you know, back then, man, they they didn't even teach anything about, about trauma, so they taught like a lot of hospital stuff. You know what I mean, like wound care and all that other stuff. But it wasn't um, it wasn't like your first aid, um, you know, you know, tactical practitioner type stuff. It was it was just like. If you were stuck on a hospital ship or in a hospital somewhere, this is how you would take care of it. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I mean, it makes sense. The so 2004 time frame, right? Like Iraq well, was probably nine months, 12 months into the Iraq invasion. Afghanistan has been around for a couple of years, but yeah. all those lessons learned. And I, I just think, of I mean like the basic like Air Force self-aid buddy care? I remember like 2007, maybe it was talking about like a sucking chest wound and like how to do it, but like use your ID card and like wrap it up, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But you saw that thing evolve based on, you know, dudes being in combat for 20 years and different ideologies,
0: different different ideologies of of wound of wounding. You know what I mean? Like we understand, um, we understand ballistics and, um, and, uh, in how that affects cavities now way more, way better than we ever used to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we also, like, and, like, shout out to all the special operations medics that are, like, that love medicine. But, you know, those guys, they they really, they move the needle on how the Army, the Air Force, and, and the Navy do um, TCCC. Combat Casualty Care. And yeah. it's... Uh, and they've like, they've actually, they've actually like rewritten doctrine. big, big army, big Navy, big air force, you know, big Marine Corps. Well, not so much Marine Corps. They don't have medics, but, um, they've actually rewritten the doctrine to say, Hey man, these are what these guys are seeing. And then this is how we're going to implement it with our conventional and soft forces. You know what I mean? So like the way, the way casualty care goes these days, it's night and day difference it was in 2004 yeah. five, six, you know what I mean I didn't know what the fuck I was doing back then man like <laughs> you know <laughs> you know you know what I mean I'm like oh boy here we go you know uh, hope,
1: hope no one needs me
0: yeah, yeah I saw this in a movie once yeah I, I mean I remember used to like my first deployment in in um, 05 in Ramadi I was like I hope nothing happens but you know something ha- you know a lot of things happened there but it was like that's that is an internal, like, lesson learned, but also, um, I, you know, I wish I had the wherewithal to be, like, write this stuff down, to, like, give it to somebody that had some, uh, uh that had some pull as far as, like, teaching everybody, you know what I mean? I could only affect, and I could only influence the people that were around me, especially the you guys that were coming in to the age station at 1-5, and then, but it was, like, but, uh... you know, now looking back on it, like you're saying, you can't read the label of the, uh, of the jar from the inside, from the inside. It's like, I wish I had somebody that could be a conduit to send that information up and out. You know what I mean?
1: It's tough. I mean, very rarely do organizations have something like that. And I find like, all right, you're deployed, like you're so busy just doing your job. There's usually not extra bandwidth to like, Oh, by the way. All right, I've got this dialed in. So now I'm gonna spend my free time trying to figure out how to make it better. And then two, again, I mean, again, there's usually occasionally you get a good boss or something like that. But like, it's tough in a big bureaucracy with a lot of red tape to move the needle. Like, unfortunately, that's a like cynical way of looking at it. But like, if I, if you want to affect some kind of change down at that that level at a you know from a tactical all the way to a strategic level, like that's a tough that's a tough thing to. To do if not impossible it's really
0: really really hard yeah yeah it's it's really really hard and and that's like i again it takes it takes a whole career to get to where you're going and the only place i ever saw that was at the unit like you know those guys were we were writing doctrine on how to use whatever type of kit whether it be weapons med commo whatever They're like, what, what are the unit guys doing? Because we want to learn from them. And that's in it. obviously being an, going from the infantry and then all the way up to there, it's two different milestones there, but it's like, you, you, when you look back you go, Oh wow. Like those guys, um, they, they, they were the ones that were affecting change,
1: you know? I was like, probably made one parallel that I did see it. So like our weapons officers. So those are the instructor pilots that go out to Nellis. They spend six months through a grueling course. They learn, you know, all the secrets, all the integration, um, you know, with national assets, et cetera. And I would say our last deployment. So sniper pod on F-16, I think the time we deployed, we could generate cat three coordinates. Yeah. So not super, I mean, it was, it was good enough for government work. But we actually, because we were dropping so many bombs and we were generating so many cat, we're like pin, like we had all the documentation, all the footage where if we actually overflew a point and, you know, shot a laser spot on an excavator or whatever we wanted, spun around, dropped the bomb. Like we had the, the data that say, Hey, you know what, this sniper pod while it was only tested and proven, you know, at test to generate cat three coordinates like we can actually generate cat two or cat one coordinates i forget which ones yeah but we we upgraded it but it was again not an easy thing to do Uh, but probably the weapons officer dealing with the weapons school is the only place where like hey this this thing this doctrine can get adjusted and fixed you know in four months which is which is lightning right yeah which is lightning fast yeah so it's cool to see those type impacts otherwise yeah, probably in twos like tourniquets. I think tourniquets from a medical standpoint, when you join, it's like you put a tourniquet on, like that leg's gone, that arm's gone, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Now where right, it like tourniquet yeah. everything and then you, yeah,
0: you got re- reperfusion rates and in time and all that stuff. Man, I, you know, like um so going back to those days, so after I got out of buds and then ran over to to first Marine Division you have to go through the school called uh, Field Medical Service School, which is like which is like uh it's kind of like a it's a transition school to teach Corman how to how to hang out with the Marine Corps. Because the Marine Corps is a different culture, you know what I mean? <laughs> but they also they're also teaching you some trauma trauma stuff. How to be how to be the guy on the ground, basically saving lives. And I remember rolling around, there was a field exercise that we were doing and rolling around with the with a rag and, and sticks in a in a Gatorade, you know the ring, you know when you pop the top off the Gatorade, that little like little ring that sits on the bottle yeah. it had like a bunch of those rings to to like to uh, to hold down the windlass, basically the stick, and uh, so we were using sticks and rags in a in a Gatorade ring as a tourniquet. <laughs> yeah, you know? nuts, it, right? It, it innovative. <laughs> yeah. And that's early two thousand five, right? So it's like, you know, and now and now like everybody, everybody's rolling around with some type of,
1: tournament. Yeah, I think mean, I mean I got two turnarounds in my truck. You know, like you can just.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. you Never leave home without one, right?
1: Yeah, when, especially you see, obviously you can say you can save lives, pretty quick in a traumatic event. Uh okay. huh. Dude, that's that's wild, buds. Uh, how was how was buds? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a. Uh,
0: man, like, I don't want to, I don't want to put any, uh, words in people's mouths, but it's a, it's like a circus. It's like a big circus and you just got to endure it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, fortunately for me, you know, I endured it to the point where I got injured, you know? Um, but, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting school. And the reason why I say that is because it, ne- it never, that, that school, I remember it just like never stops. Like you get up at six o'clock in the morning and you keep moving until, you know, six, seven, eight o'clock at night. And then when you're at hell week, you just keep moving, mm-hmm. keep going, keep going, keep, keep, keep one foot in front of you. <laughs> like, when does this thing stop? You know what I mean? It's a grinder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, we were talking beforehand. I know you can you only go into so much detail, uh, especially with where you work beforehand. But I was listening; it was like the Sean Ryan show with Chris Van Zant uh, and Kyle Morgan kind of talking about that because those guys have similar backgrounds. Because like the SEAL community, I mean, there's documentaries on buds, there's TV shows, I mean, books, everything on it. Secrets out. Yeah, like everyone kind of knows, and uh, you hear SEALs joke about like when they joined in the early 90s, late 90s, 2000, like there was nothing, right? There was like Charlie Sheen, like that was like the intel you sure. had on Buds. And now like, you know, every single day, what's going to happen and how it go through it. The The process for Green Berets and going to the unit Delta Force, not as well known or documented, but can you compare those two? Like, like do those programs like parallel one another or is it more like, hey, you, if you're going to the unit, obviously you still have to prove yourself. You're still being trained and going through things, but is it like the circus you can describe? Because having never done it, right. I, I feel like I understand what you're saying. Like you watch a yeah. documentary on buds and it's just people getting hit with fire hoses and yeah. marching into the ocean yeah. is doing like the unit. Is that kind of same or is it a different vibe? So yeah, I mean there's, they're
0: diametrically opposed and they do it and each one. <laughs> and each one does a great job of selecting the personnel that they're looking for, right? Um they you know, so in in buds, it's like everything is in your face, everything is performance based, uh, sort of. You just gotta hang on. <laughs> yeah. You hang on, you can you can kinda make it. Uh well I you know, I never made the second or third phase, so I'm so I can't tell you can't speak of that but the during first phase you know in doc and first phase everything is in your face um they're not teaching you much like it's more like hey you know um let's see if you can sink or swim basically you know what i mean um and uh uh, looking back that's like kind of like your selection that eight weeks of first phase or nine however long it is now that's like your that's your you're like hey do you deserve to be here type deal right um, and they have their own, they have their own method, which is, you know, yelling, yelling at you and making you cold and wet and sandy and um, sleep depriving you over a course of two months, you know what I mean? And yep. so, you know, there's, there's that end of it. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, Bud's is only six months long. Okay. Um, total. And then you go off to SEAL qualifying training and then, and then you've got like team training and all this stuff. But that, by that time, by the time you go to SEAL qualifying training, you're, you've got to try to on your on your on your chest put you know when you graduate sqt you gotta try it so not a big deal right but then um uh when you go to when you go to the q course this is the long haul man like so you're you're not only asked to do a lot of physical things you're also you're also asked to use your mind your brain um and especially for 18 deltas you know, that, that haul can be up to three years. Jeez. If you like, it. if you don't go, if you're not like a one time through kind of guy, I've seen guys be there for three years. Right. So like, I've been on a team for, took me two years. I went straight through. Like I didn't, I didn't recycle anything. Took me two years to do it. And, um, you know, I'll remember being at third group and be like, shit, man, I thought you, we got rolled out of there. He goes, no, you know, I had to recycle twice and this, that, and the other, you know what I mean? But um, th- you know, those instructors are, are, um, you've got like two types of instructors. You know, in Buds, you have M- <laughs> I remember in Buds, I'm like, oh, man, there was always that one dude that you hated. And there was always <laughs> that one guy, Yeah, you- There was like the lover and the hug. There was the hugger and the hater, right? Yeah. Sorry. Baba. Could be quiet, bud. Um, love it. Uh, <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> uh, um, and then when you get to the Q course, you have you get assigned a cadre, right? For like a group of, group of you guys. And um that was kind of a Russian roulette. It was like was it a guy who really didn't care what you did? Or was it a guy who was so control freakish about his students that he'd wake up at four thirty in the morning just to make sure that you went PT. You know what I mean? Yeah and um luckily for me like throughout my my time in in the q course i had some pretty pretty really like really good green berets being my mentor right and um they taught me a lot about they taught me a lot about uh about how, like what it is to be a good a good dream beret and how and how how it d- differs from all the other soft forces and all this other stuff and um and like i said like that's the long haul right so it was a little bit more of a it's not. I wouldn't call it a gentleman's course, but it was more professional. And then you get to the unit. So getting there is a very separating um, experience where you're you feel like you're the on your own island. You know what I mean? <laughs> but once you once you get there, and you go through. Um, well, I went through a assault, assault medic course, and then I went to OTC. Um, and both of those courses are. Are very gentleman courses because you are there to learn. You're tr- you're there to learn their business. You're there to better yourself. You're there to um, to hone your craft and your skill. You know, um, and and the only limiting factor for you not making it across the hallway, so to speak, you know, crossing the hallway is like getting out of OTC and going to a squatter is um, is yourself. Right. like you can you're the only one that can get in your in your own way no one is gonna get in your in your way and uh, and they will and they're they generally like i i want to say they generally do they do care about students you know what i mean where they're like we need this guy's invested this so much time in his a career and then b at this place right that he needs to um we need to make sure if he can get it and and the thing is like their standards are very strict. You know what I mean? Like you make one mistake and you make it again, you're probably blade running on getting out of there. You know what I mean? On getting out In OTC and also in squadron, you know what I mean? Like you slip on a wet booger out there in squadron, you better not do it again. You know what I mean? Um. So, I mean, as far as professionalism, it just, it climbs, you know what I mean? And getting to the unit, it's like, wow, this is what professionals look like, you know? So that's, that was my experience.
1: That, uh, again, i may made, and I never went to weapons school. Right. But I may draw a parallel of my buddies, you know, seeing where they were. So for a guy to go to weapons school, you know, they're an instructor pilot, right. They've been flying a jet for eight years. They've been teaching like they they've proven themselves. Right. And then they go and while, uh, it's not an, it's definitely not an easy course, but they're there to like learn, to be the teachers that teach. Uh, and they put yeah. them through kind of a rigorous, yeah, a grueling, grueling six months to, to get them on the other side. So that when they go back to a fighter squadron, they're the subject matter experts that, you know, they, they know it all. And if they don't know it, they'll find the guy who does and teach, but humble, approachable, credible. That's their matcha, right? That they, they go back to, to doing that. It's, it's, it's a, I know there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot in there. I have a lot of questions. I'll try to like cage it, but. Going back to the Q course, so that's Green Beret selection, right? Yeah, selection and training, yeah. And like you said, that could, that was two years for you, and it could be upwards of, of three years. What was the process to get selected to be a Green Beret? I mean, I assume you're applying, right? You're being vetted by your leadership. They're looking at you, and they say, yeah, you're invited. Come on out.
0: So you, um, um, you go through selection. There's a selection process. Um, and I went through in 2010, September, I think, man, it's all blur kind of, uh, yeah, I think it's like 2000, September, 2010, October, August, 2000, I can't remember. It was somewhere in
1: 2010. Um, they run, they run like two selections a year, right? Is that the, they run, oh, no, they run like four or five. Okay.
0: Yeah. The unit runs two. The okay. Um, uh, and then you go to selection. So it's, it did it berries. I mean, I don't know what it is today, but I was, it was, uh, 27 days or 21 days you're out at camp McCall and, um, you do various things. So, you know, the first, <laughs> the first week is kind of like your stress week and you do log PT and you play games out in the field and they spray you down with the hoses and all that other stuff. Right um then you go to land nav right and um back then it was if you went five for five on first day on the star course you get to go back what, and what's that
1: up. five for five
0: so five points they give you so if you can find all five points within your within your hit okay. times your um your go and you can and you can go back to chemical and have some hot chow instead of eating mres and Sitting by the fire so to speak you know <laughs> and then the last last 10 days or so is a uh, team week so you're you get paired up with with people and they give you different you know one example is they have you they give you like two barrels a bunch of poles some lashing and like one flat tire and one full tire. and they go you have to move this these barrels which are nuclear material across from this point to another point, which is about like I was looking on the map. I'm like, Fuck, that's ten k away, <laughs> and, and uh, you have to do it in this amount of time. And you've got thirty minutes to figure out. And they make somebody a, a class, you know, like the team leader and an assistant team leader, and then you guys bounce off ideas, and then you start making your thing. And then when the instructor says go, you start going right. And then all they're doing is they're looking at how well you interact with people. How well you how well you play with with others like like my son over here plays well with, with others you know what I mean like right. and and um how how calm cool collected you are how confident you are whatever decision that you make you know that whole thing that whole the SF selection is is as much as the body as it is the mind um because they they don't want a guy who's just gonna go freaking out because his plan didn't work or he's a control freak or he's a micromanager so, Um, that's the selection. And then at the end of that, you know, you go in um, to the, to the big hall and they tell you you're selected or not selected. And these are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. um, And then this is your MOS that you're going to get basically 18 Bravo, Charlie, Alphas are the officers obviously. And then, um,
1: and then what your language is going to be. So. Uh, I would say it is funny too, to hear like, or, I mean, I'm sure you see it. Like the guys you get thrown into a group with, but like you realize the scenario you're in, there's no good, there's no great solution, right? And it's always like, there's an 80% solution and it's not going to be perfect uh, and stuff's going to go wrong. But then like the meltdown, like some people will have, you're like, dude, all, like one, just make a decision, like own the decision, be a good dude, like work with people, don't lose your mind. But it's amazing. They like, you get to like, yeah, you see these very, I mean, it's the same, like, I don't know copy and paste like here let's give a problem there's no good answers we're gonna induce some stress and just see how people react you know and you got the one guy who was a meltdown
0: yeah one of them
1: was like uh
0: you had to push a camera where one or two jeeps and they the jeeps didn't was missing the wheel in <laughs> on like one of the sides right then you had poles and lashings and stuff right and uh and it it you could steer it uh and we were pushing the thing and the leader was like just yelling at us. <laughs> I remember my buddy he was like, He just had enough and he goes, you know, shut the F <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. like dude. <laughs> yeah, you know, and um you know, he didn't really know how to take it. He just kinda he stopped yelling, he stopped giving, you know, um command and control. And um we missed our hit time because because of that, you know what I mean? So um it's it it's uh it, it definitely It definitely, they definitely do a great job of, I don't know how it is now, but they did, they, back then they did a great job of selecting guys that had the aptitude to go to the key course, you know, you know, are they, are they, did they work well with others? How was their mental aptitude? You know, um, uh, I just had one on the tip of my tongue, John, whatever. If I remember it. Yeah. Not, not an easy thing to go through. What was your language? My language is Urdu, spoken in Pakistan. Okay, which is indelible to my home language, which is Hindi. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Those two get so, along so well, I hear.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was like, "You got to be kidding me, right?" You know. So, uh, I, I can I could speak it. I just couldn't write it. So I learned um, when I went to language school. I learned how to how to like how to write it, at least. Okay. And I would practice with my teacher. Um. And I heard stories of guys like, oh, you're already, in, you're already a native of that language. You can pass through language school and all of this stuff. They asked me if I wanted to do that. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I actually want to, you know, how to, how to write this stuff and be, uh, not scholastic at it. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be an early scholar, but right. at least, you know, if I find myself in that country, which I did, <laughs> yes, <Yeah, it's shocking. laughs> uh, um, I can, yeah, <laughs> I I can, I can, um, I can get by. You know what I mean? As far as uh, as a local, I don't, I don't, I
1: don't, I don't want to stick out as a as a guy who's a, as a foreigner. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's one thing no. that people listen might not fully uh, know, like. Green Berets, obviously, special operations, but being a master in a language and a culture, and then going to embed with you know forces from that host nation, whichever you know your group or you're responsible for building that partner force. That's a big, that's a big aspect of it. I mean, that might even be the cornerstone. I'm speaking unintelligent, but can you talk to that a little bit? Like why, why the green braids? Why is that such an important thing and how does that work?
0: So um, they're different from all other special operations because um, the, uh, the key, the key difference is the, the unconventional warfare ability, right? So now everybody's saying we can do unconventional warfare, but, um, I I full heartedly disagree because it's um it's not taught in some of these programs you know what I mean uh, we're taught how to do this stuff and then we when we further our further our skill set when we get to group and the other thing is being able to go into any set country and speak the language and also be culturally culturally aware of what's going around them right so um, if you look at the old like Vietnam Green Berets right. Um, and then some of the like the 80s and 90s, so they you know they were involved a lot of, with a lot of low intensity conflicts. So if your 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 viewers or your listeners aren't 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 uh, familiar with what low intensity conflict is, U.S. was involved with a lot of those things, and Green Berets were part, right? So just look up what low intensity conflict means, and you can start looking at some stuff around the world of like geopolitically or what the U.S. was all about back then. Um, and that's what made green beret is so successful on the ground in afghanistan i think you know what i mean they knew how to link up with the soul quote unquote so-called g chief kind of assuage his his uh <laughs> his uh his uh ego you know what i mean yeah and and or massage his ego to do uh not only what the the you know to convince him basically it's good for us and good for you you know what I mean? yep um and that's that's the that's the major difference you know um you know direct action is special reconnaissance and all that stuff aside what makes what makes a green beret a green beret is the ability to do unconventional warfare and speak a language yeah that's yeah. a that's a it's a a key a key component you know
1: and i venture to say not knowing anything uh or insider knowledge but today you just look at the world environment you know if we're pivoting towards like near-peer threats in china brazil just ditched the dollar the agreement with china several other South American countries, Africa, uh, you know, China's all in Africa. It's almost like the cold war days where you're trying to influence, you know, these not, not necessarily all third world countries, but countries that are up and coming or that have needs where they look to a superpower to come in and, you know, build roads or, you know, give kickbacks and to corrupt leaders and arms and all sorts of stuff. But having, it's so important, in my opinion, and again, not being a strategist, but to have U.S. representation out there vying and making sure we have good relationships, uh, yep. working with government, militaries throughout the world. And I think that's going to be even, yeah, you know, in the next 10 years, like the landscape, landscape is changing. And we're going back to kind of the bipolar uh, war or world where you had, you know, the U.S. and Soviet Union now, you know, U.S. and is it China? Like I think probably most people would venture to say, yep. And now it's so important to be in all these little countries.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, where I mean the uh, the history speaks for itself, right? I mean, uh, you know JFK, whether you liked him or hated him, you know it doesn't really matter to me. But you know he created the SF like branch basically in the army. And he pulled it away from the CIA, the office the OSS and, and brought it over into the military DOD side of the house because he realized that we are 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 the you know, we didn't have that capability, that force to be able to go into another country and and, and you know, they say buy with and through, but it's more like, you know, um, linking up with, with indigenous personnel, training and equipping them for not only their own personal defense, but also for the U.S.'s strategic global political uh, needs. You know what I mean? And you know, the day we go away from that, I believe, uh, is the day that we lose a big, big piece of. You know, just like you're saying, where where China, China is starting to not infringe because it is a free world. It's a free world, and they can do whatever they want, but. Right. Um, They're they're starting to to kind of like dip their dip their spoon in the pot, so to speak. You know what I mean? As far as uh, influencing different countries, and obviously they're going to go to the countries that are the weakest, right? First,
1: well, it's I mean, yeah, you say I say China, right? Like we do, I mean, we're doing the exact same thing. We've always done the exact same thing. Like we just want to we want to be number one and keep doing that. And by China doing that, like that, now you all right? Hey, the U.S. gets knocked out of the the number one seat, if you will. And there's ramifications economically, et cetera. Um, yeah. So we, I mean, we do the, we do the exact same thing. Oh, hundred percent, but we didn't have any competition. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were just winning it. The funny, <laughs> the one aspect from my demo days, right. Doing air shows of all, all things like the strategic level impact of that. I did not realize, but I did an air show in Rio Negro, Colombia, And uh the day I was flying, you know, there's a lot of, there's, obviously it's open to the public, But the Colombian Secretary of Defense, their Secretary of the Air Force, their Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and the the entourage of like 30-plus people came out to watch to fly, right? Because we're trying to get the Colombians to buy F-16s. Having interoperability, and we see that with the F-35 today, like having nations that are all flying the same fighter for interoperability is an important piece. But obviously, there's a lot of of things that are benefits when you go down that road. Um, That's right. But partnering with these nations and having a good relationship and building that relationship it's multifaceted. And I think it is, it is really, um, really important if, you know, we want to stay, stay number one. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's uh it's, it's a, it's a, it's a huge piece of the pie. Man. Like, yeah, totally agree with you, you know? And, and it's, huh, it's an, it's uh We've been practicing it for a long time, yeah. <laughs> so we should be pretty damn good at this, right? Yeah, we should. Uh, we should be. We, yeah. I mean, that's, we say we should, yeah, right? right. Uh, and but, unfortunately, you know, the the men and women in the uniform today are are just as well equipped and and well trained to do it. It's just whether or not they're allowed to. Allow to yeah. you know what I mean.
1: So, 100%. yeah, politics and all those things those trickle down and impact from the strategic level all the way down to the tactical level right and see it your time as a, a green beret um talk to me a little bit about that how was how were how those years
0: that was that was pretty fun man I um I got my wish with with being a green beret you know I had I had a good um like I said I had good mentors in in um, in the Q course and learned about unconventional warfare and all this other stuff and so um my my first deployment was just like a basic village stability operation in Afghanistan. Um, my second deployment, though, was really cool because I was—it was a singleton singleton mission out to the Central Asia Central Asia states to um, to kind of track and um, hunt Taliban financiers, basically, right? And and see how that how that um, how that money was. Getting funneled outside of the country back into Afghanistan to fund their fund their war against the United States. You know what I mean? That's wild. In in our in our allies, you know. And so um, I started in Tajikistan and then made my way via vehicle into Uzbek, and then <laughs> uh, made my way in into via vehicle into Kyrgyzstan. Um, I've, I've been to. The Balakshad Balaksh, Oblast province, whatever, which is the eastern border of Tajikistan in the southern in the northern border of Afghanistan. So we're talking Hindu Kush Mountain Silk Road. Yeah, I've driven that in a no in kidding. a Toyota Land Cruiser <laughs> um, with a broken header, just sounding like. <laughs> 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 uh, I've touched the China border. You know, I went to Pakistan. That was a good nine months. That was really. Um, an eye opening and fun um nine month deployment. So I was all alone um collecting uh information
1: for nice. Here's the funny part, right? To me, I hear uh it sounds epic until you have to do your travel voucher uh post deployment of holy shit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> the, that that the...
0: travel voucher post deployment. I mean, I can't tell you how many times it got it got kicked back to me yeah. right and um uh luckily i had some i had some good leadership that kind of stood up for me and they were like no nah, no, nah, you don't understand this guy was just he just did this this, and this and yeah. he was part of this program and that program and and uh yeah. eventually it got yeah. kicked through but my wife was like you know we have like forty thousand dollars worth of bills here
1: <laughs> right yeah so i was like this sounds epic and i can only imagine the uh the person behind the computer that was like no yeah that doesn't have a receipt for this. Nah, we don't go there. You can't do that. Yeah, you know, like, dude. Oh. Um... Uh-huh. he's like not <laughs>
0: even our mission set. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, right.
1: Uh... Hey, hey, I didn't just go here because it was fun. I didn't go to Pakistan yeah, yeah, because yeah. I was like, hey, this is nice. What? So when you're doing one of those singleton out there, obviously you're developing human contacts, doing all sorts of stuff. Um, I imagine you're doing a lot of intergovernment crosstalk potentially like a feeding off one another yep. what um can't i'm super again i was trying to like not go down a, a rabbit rabbit hole that we can't come back out of but we'll send it let's go I'll see. yeah the um day in the life of man like how did you start that process so you get dropped off you drive across the border but then you're trying to integrate into these networks and find these people like how did that i know there's pre-study there's probably some you know handoffs yep. but Dude, like day one, like just to how to get started. Cause yeah, I think go TDY to a school, right? Like just getting, getting on base. And if you even get a rental car or taxi, like that's the pain of the air force. Like, how do I get on base from a, an Uber, uh, because I can't get a <laughs> so rental car, you know, how so I get across the border and it was yeah. like, dude, I can't even get a rental car authorized on DTS orders for like a, you know, three month TDY, but like, Hey, go, go do this. You're going here. Like, how does that even start?
0: So, um, I had a, I had a guy, uh, that was in that seat for about a year. Um, and he was kind of home based at a, at a Dushanbe Bay in, in Tajikistan. And he, he, uh, he kind of gave me a, like a really good handover of, of some information and also some things that he was looking at. But, um, he never really, he, he never really, uh, he had, he had, uh, he had, uh, he did his like area studies and map studies and cultural studies and all sorts of stuff, but he never didn't have time to follow through. And so, I was looking at all the stuff that he was kind of managing and juggling, and I said, and I talked to my and uh, you know, fortunately, I had a I had a really good I had a really good commander that was there, yeah. that was kind of like the two IC of the DAT. And I said, hey man, I'm gonna dump all this stuff that requires me to be here at the embassy because my mission says this, right? um and then uh i had you know you have you also have your directive from from upstairs right so like those two things have to match and then you know, what i mean by upstairs is uh, agency stuff so it's like those things have to match and then you go and execute and there's oversight on two sides so you have your dod and the, and the agency oversight where they're like okay you're not meeting the, goals or meeting the goals put them both together in a room and i said hey man if i if you want me to be just if you want me to just hang out here, you know, in <laughs> Tajikistan and not do anything, just be a body, I can do that. But that's not what I'm here for. Right? This is what I'm here. I'm here to do this, that, and the other. And they were like, okay, go ahead and execute, right? And so I had all this stuff that that uh, that Dave had, had had handed down to me. And um and so I just started following up, man. Right. So like the first one was like, How porous is the Uzbek border? Right. Uh turns out it's really porous. All you yeah. need is some <laughs> wire cutters and yeah. All yeah. you, oh, you need some wire cutters and you can drive a vehicle right through it. You know? Um how porous is the kurdi border border? Pretty porous. You know what I mean? How porous is the Afghan border to the Tajik border? Not that porous right there's only two two places that you can cross cross the pond river and and um yeah there's and their and their border security is is pretty robust now um then it's like well how how is how is black tar heroin getting out of the country you know what i mean and so it's like all these questions that were being asked that never got answered i was just trying to answer them that's all and um so you know that's that's how it all how it all started, and then and then it started to you know that that was a slow trickle for about two months, John, and then um, after after I started answering these questions, I'd go to these places and meet people, and my Russian got pretty darn good, and um, and I would start speaking a little sputnik to them and (laughs) uh, uh, they would be like oh this guy's all right you know and i wasn't a white dude which i think really kind of disarmed them you know what i mean and uh and then they would be like yeah we see mules coming across at this time of day or this time of year this and the other and that would give me more information to go back to do a surveillance or whatever it may be right so met people to get like a good layout of the land as far as um um, of how nefarious activities kind of uh, start and all that stuff. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, th- that nine months, that was pretty darn busy It was busy. In that because
1: time. It, yeah. it's like in that time period, did you, like, can you talk about how, how does that money, how does black tar heroin make it out of Afghanistan? You know, onto the streets of us, how does that money make it back? Like, how is that beneficial? I mean, Think of just shipping something from one part of the world to the next with FedEx or whatever is <laughs> yeah. fairly easy, but to get you know illicit drugs out of Afghanistan and then money back into the the Taliban, how does that work?
0: So the the um, uh, in my in my experience the um, the it goes one of two ways. So they make the opium in Afghanistan, they package it. And they ship it north through Tajik, <clears throat> not a porous border. But if you have enough money, you can adjust the border patrol guys, right? The the yeah. national security guys, um, because those guys are hard up for money anyway. The Tajik government isn't paying them very much money. From there, you have pretty much free reign of driving it to wherever you want to. Um, they have, they have various airfields um across central asia where they can then ship it off to the Middle east there it gets distributed through the middle east throughout the- how the money comes back i uh, find myself in dubai <laughs> um and that and that's where the money gets exchanged right it changes currency from u.s dollars um to either you know Chinese rubin or it, it changes hands to to rupees, right? Um, and then gets shipped back into Afghanistan. How it gets shipped back in Afghanistan is they take a rat line through a truck and go back from Tajik down into into northern Afghanistan, Maziar Sharif, in those areas. Um, another way it goes is through Pakistan. So Pakistan's an easy one. Um. um I will put a target on my back here, but uh, <laughs> the Pakistani government isn't um, as forthright as we would want them to believe that they are, you know. And a lot of the government officials are involved with that mind monitoring.
1: Yeah, I mean, overtly, right? I think we might have or might not have seen that with Osama bin Laden, right? So everyone knows that story. But you know, I, I remember being in Afghanistan. Again, I had first world problems compared to what you're dealing with, but it, I, it was a time period we had uh, a couple of cast incidents and then, uh, we were also intrusive, you know, we'd have an aircraft overfly the Pakistani border by, you know, a hundred meters. And at that point they shut the border down, which was how we we're getting, you know, all the supplies to Bagram and Kandahar and all, you know, all the logistics. Um, and so, you know, it was, a, it was a, hardship time there where you couldn't get all the supplies and fuel in the base was, I mean, just a pain. Um, so yeah, it's not necessarily like i always a, super great and uh no easy working relationship
0: no it's it's a it's a it's it's a terrible relationship and um in in it we can't say that we did it you know what what i'm saying yeah it's on them man you know what i mean and right and uh (laughs) it's totally on them and it's like what why uh why why are we trying to be friends with these people in the first place when they're so corrupt? Sorry, I'm trying to put this watch on this. No, there I, you I, go. I get... You're right. um, And it's it's like uh, yeah, they're they're it, the Pakistani government is it's not they're yeah. not great people. That's for sure. And um, you know, there's there's a there's a myriad of things that I've seen, like you know when black tar heroin isn't in season because it is, there's a season for it. What are they doing? And they're shipping off humans to make money. You know what I mean? And so there's, you know, we all, we all want to talk about war and all this other stuff, but the, the greater that we, we aren't controlling the humanity. You know what I mean? That's, that's coming in and out of the country. Now think about it now. I mean, shoot, dude, we're not there any longer. Right. And it's gone, gone to the wayward. Um, I, I was out of, a conversation with a friend of mine who uh, a former unit member of mine and we were just talking about like afghanistan and how like how do we quantify all all the things that happened in the last two years right with us leaving in 2021 in august you know people clinging to the to the uh to the uh, the you know the landing pot the you know, landing gear of, of the c17 and it's it's like he he equated it to this, and this is kind of a good one. Was like, it's like an apple, right? You eat the apple, right? So this is like while you're in country, you eat the apple; it's delicious, right? You're done with the apple, and you throw it away. And the thing is, it is what it is. It's not. It's not like uh, I know guys, other guys who took who took it really, really personally. and It's like, yeah, I I I get it. I get what you're what you're trying to what you're trying to say. And that, but don't let that identify you. You know what I mean? That that was a job in a different country that you were. Called to do, you know what I mean? Yep. So, and it's um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it. But you think about it now, like how much human
1: trafficking is going on in Afghanistan? You know what I mean? Astronomical amounts. You know what I mean? I I can't. I mean, it's unfathomable to like even think about. So one, if I ever think I'm having like a bad day, I also just like perspective-wise, like there's some people who are having really bad days in Afghanistan. But even traveling, you know, if you go to Dubai, if you go to Bahrain. Uh, you see like the people who are working on the streets or in the hotels, like services, uh, a lot of them, when they're going home at night, like they're not living in great condition. They're there. I mean, essentially indentured servitude. I venture to say probably for, for most of them. And well, those, those really
0: guys s- are, those guys are, Um, I got to talking to some of those kind of service guys in nearby. In yeah. They're spent, I spent a little bit. I mean, not a little bit. I spent a lot of time in Dubai, trying to chase the money type stuff. And the people that are building all the buildings there and doing it in the service industry, and anybody's been to Dubai, you know, it's all hotels and stuff like that. You can't buy an alcoholic drink outside of town, but in the hotel, you're cool, right? Um, uh, those people, they get they get uh, sold a bill of goods They're like, "Hey, you want to make money for your family? Come on over here. We'll we'll give you money." Well, they take their passports right away. So they are not allowed to leave. Like how the hell do you leave without, passport? you
1: know yeah, what I mean? You're
0: stuck. You're stuck. and are um, And there's no end at sight. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, that's just, <laughs> that's the way it is, man. I mean, we're fortunate enough to live in the United States where we can roam free
1: and still. That's very true, right? I have, uh, I interviewed Ed Caldron. His episode hasn't released yet. It'll release before this, but. Yeah, Ed, he was a—he's uh, the drug guy, right? The yeah, cart- yeah. <laughs> so he, he fought, yeah, fought cartels right down in Mexico. Now he's doing a bunch of survival and uh, things like that here in the states. But he brought up a good point too. It's like, you know, like COVID, right? Like we still had lettuce, we still had fruit and vegetables showing up. I mean, it's the same—the same deal is happening with people who are trying to get across the border, and then all of a sudden they find themselves like they're in indentured, indentured servitude, they're slaves, they're stuck working in the fields because they paid some coyote or some, you know, someone to get them across the border. Right. Like, man, they, they have no options. It's it's a lot of bad stuff that happens out there.
0: I mean, that's the, that is the, yeah, that's just the way it is, man. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to, it meant maybe it sounds crass to me, crass to to people, but it, I am not going to lose any sleep over it. It's, um, you don't, um, that's just the way the world has worked for eons. you know. Since the millennia since the beginning of time, this is how it's been. And Yep. There's um, no change in it. I uh we're just we're just better equipped to stuff like this. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> we don't valid. have runners any longer, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: hundred percent valid. Yeah. So man, that's that's a pretty interesting time. So you did two deployments as Green Bray and then you, you came back and then did you get invited to selection or did you apply or like i um i uh,
0: opened my my inbox one day and um and i don't know if it's a mass email or whatever but it was like hey there's a there's a union out there that would that uh, that would let would that that has the opportunity for you to go in and try and I kind of put it on the wayward, and this is like 2000. Let's see, 2000. This is 2015. Okay, and my contract ended in 2017. And uh, Julia, my wife Julia, was like, "Well, what are you, you going to do?" And I said, "I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to go to this unit or I'm getting out, to play golf, right?" And she goes, "Okay." So I put my packet in to go over, over there. It gets accepted. I go to selection and I get hired. Um, uh, let's back up for a second here. I went to selection and uh, the, I was at the board and they were like, well, you know, thanks for coming in, but we're not going to hire you. And I said, okay, that makes my decision like easy.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I was like shaking everybody's hand. I'm like, thanks. See you later. You know? And, uh, and I get a call that was like, I think it was a Thursday or a Friday or whatever. And then I, I, uh, I'm sitting back at the third group company office and I get a phone call. My, uh, company, sergeant major Chris Ramsey gets a phone call on his phone. Like, Barash, you got a, you got a phone call here. And I was like, who is it from? <laughs> he goes, I don't know. It was some Sergeant major. Right. So I answered the phone and it was, um, sorry, major Scott Brine. And he goes, "Hey, we'd actually like to hire you." <laughs> <laughs> what changed? You know what I mean? You're, and so anyway, I took the job, and and, uh, and it went on over there. And um, I cleared—I think I cleared posts because at that point, you know, when you're when you're in that kind of a secretive unit, you have to clear posts and all sorts of stuff. I, th- I think I cleared posts in like three days. <laughs> got out of there. <laughs> Yeah, so- they cut me orders within like 24 hours. I had orders over there, and then I um. I, I cleared bus for like three days, and then I was over over there, over the fence, so to speak.
1: So what was the two experiences like that you can talk about? Uh, can you compare the two or just completely different? Like to me, roaming around as a singleton through Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, um, that that seems pretty pretty wild. I imagine you're still doing some of that stuff. You're also doing some of the direct, direct action type things. What, it, what was it, it like? Is, um
0: that place did a great job of allowing anybody who had the experience to, to express their prowess in that experience. If that, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, there was, there was no, no holding back, you know, like we talk about risk aversion in the military, especially on the ground forces side, you know, like we're not in debt cause we're risk adverse and we don't want, um, people dying unnecessarily and all sorts of stuff. But, uh, the unit understood and still understands to this day, dangerous that job is in that um and that bad things can't happen right and, it, and it's okay you know what i mean a, a learn from it and b you know how do, how do we how do we evolve as a as a fighting force it is the it is the place that evolves so fast and so efficiently i've never seen it before like as a, an organization it's like an organism
1: you know what i mean um I think it It might have been Chris Van Zant when he was on Sean the Sean Ryan show that I was listening to. He was talking about going through one of the training evolutions, and a guy blew his hand off. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, that happens all the time. Well, not
1: all, yeah, but it happened, and you know, like he compares like regular army, and I said, you know, like regular air flight stand down. We're not doing anything else for the rest of the day, tomorrow, and the next day while we investigate it. And his thing was just like. All right, next team up. What I mean is just like keep moving through it, you know. Was he an OTC at the time or something? I think when he was describing, I need to go back and listen to it. But he was going through the training cycle. So OTC that's is right. uh, the operator training course, right? That's right. Yeah. And so I, I think that's when it was. And I might be mistaken, but he was just like, "Yeah, yeah all right, next evolution, you know, next team up, you know."
0: It happens. I mean, I, I was—I've never been—I've never been around breaching uh, accidents, but um, I've, I've had buddies that, that have been, and it's like, you know it's like all right well he's off at the hospital and who's who's gonna be the next guy <laughs> <It's>, yeah <laughs> next um, yeah ne- yeah next and it um it's uh it's yeah uh, like I said like the organization as a whole is I looked at it as an organism and it would always change the whole thing and it was always changing it never regressed it was always progressing some for some reason and somehow the stars aligned for that place it always it always uh it always uh it always moved forward and you know so going back to your question about you know what was it like between being yeah, a beret and being a an sf guy in in the unit um i did a lot more direct action in the unit um but i also did a lot of singleton stuff as well right um which i was comfortable with because i'd already done it yeah um so that was like the margin of my experience you know what i mean it, it's, like, um, I hadn't done any direct action since, like, 2008 when I was with our uh, First Force, you know what I mean? And, um, like, I really hadn't, I had gone to, like, some CQB schools. And then you go to OTC, which is, like, is like the most professional CQB school you could ever go to, right? Which is, you know, that's the meat and potatoes of it, not to include all the other stuff that you do in there, but... Um, I did a lot of direct action. I did a lot, of, a lot of singleton stuff. I also, I also did a lot of like unconventional medicine. If you, if you know what I'm saying, like, um, um, uh, like, uh, uh you know, like everybody hates the term CBRN, whatever medicine. It was there's like, there's cutting edge stuff that we were working on there to help save mass amounts of lives in just in case something were to happen if we were going to a near peer threat, you know. And at that point in time, there was there was one particular country that was on the on the uh, on the docket as near peer. We were pretty sure that we were gearing up to go.
1: Both of I think um, I don't know if we can talk about it again. This is a lot of I don't know if we can talk about it. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. I think you and I we had some overlap like Syria timeframe or maybe your one deployment cycle after I was because I was there the the basically the opening volley of Operation Inherent Resolve yeah so I spent has a lot of time up in Kabani. Um, yeah and talking via satellite to I think some of your brethren back back here stateside yeah uh, they were helping the YPG and then you know at that time we had not touched Raqqa yet we would if we dropped all our bombs in Kabani, then we you can go supersonic. you're a 0.95 limited in the Viper with bombs on your jet uh-huh. But if we if we cleared the rails, then we'd go back over Raqqa supersonic just to let them know that we're we're coming for we're, them next. We're coming for you. Yeah, and um, so Thanks. that is uh, and uh, interesting time frame. I actually remember too the the Russians when they started lobbying cruise missiles into Syria, and. Yeah, we would actually get a Link-16 track. The surveillance radars would would throw it, and we'd see it. And then you could actually lock it up with the targeting pod and see these cruise missiles coming over uh, into Syria. And then, obviously, they started moving their fighters and their forces in there, which changed the dynamic because of the onset of it. We didn't know if Assad, what he was going to do, right? He basically owned the western half. There was a Bino line. That's right. ISIS had everything else, or it was no man's land but they had a it was a dar's war out there in the east they had um like an sa6 site and then they would have like some su25s and so every now and then we call it the superpower lane we'd be blasting directly south like through the middle part of the country Yep. and they'd have like a su25 which would launch out of dars war going back to the the motherland on the west coast like the safety and they either those guys were completely unaware we were there but you're just kind of navigating this, like, is he showing awareness? Do they, you know, do they not? Do they, you know, there's some <laughs> interesting missions where, like, hey, there's a certain point, like, escorting B-1s here. If they launch and they even turn and point their nose at it, the B-1s are inside a weapons engagement zone. Like, it, you know, does that meet hostile intent, hostile act? You know, just right. showing awareness and, you, you know, sling an amram and start World War Three. But the Russians showed up, right? And then the Russians zipping around there, and then we got raptors flying around. It's an interesting time period. And Assad using chemical weapons, uh, dude, wild time. What, what? When were you there? Um, I was there 2000. Let's see, hold on, sorry. I was
0: there 2000, end of 2000. Oh, sorry, beginning of 2017. I was there uh, middle of 2017. I was there.
1: I was there in 18. And my last time was there was 19. Yeah, so I guess 20. Because like Raqqa, like the assault and taking Raqqa back, is that, that 2016 or 2017? I mean, ISIS held.
0: That was twenty seven That was 2017 because I was I was on a a special task force with the unit, uh, and the other the other half of the squadron was already making their push down to to Raqqa. Like a good friend of mine still has pictures of him at the su- the center the circle, yeah. These buddies all taking photos. Dude. Uh, it pushed all the, that that whole offensive down.
1: It's wild to think that it was, like, two years later. Um, when I first showed up, it was, like, Vice News, ironically enough. They did, like, an hour-long documentary riding around with ISIS, and I thought it was really well done, but they're riding around, like, with ISIS, like, public affairs officer through Raqqa, and, you know, they're showing yeah everything they're doing in Raqqa, and then, you know, obviously you see really what's happening and it takes two years to get to that assault. But to me, that was interesting. It was an interesting uh, deployment. It was different than uh, Afghanistan and even Iraq too, where, you know, this big bureaucracy machine had built up. Yep. Um, and in that time period, it hadn't, I mean, my first drop was literally a data message to go smack a target, which is something that you're like this yeah, we plan for like World War Three. Like it real? this is Yeah. So yeah, and then uh, next one was like anything that's not inside this block, if it is an individual or a truck or any kind of vehicle, kill it. Destroy it. Don't talk yeah. to anyone, just destroy it. And you're like, Yep. Yeah. This is wild times. It's this, it uh, was
0: it was a it's an interesting it was an interesting um deployment in the fact that or deployments, you know, these it, 17, 18, those years were really really interesting 17 in particular because it was a show of what we could do as a as do like dod without any bureaucracy hey weapons hot everything free go this is your mission right and it was pretty clear right it wasn't we weren't fighting an insurgency we were, we were fighting like an organized organized you know roughly organized Enemy and it was, and it was uh, pretty, pretty, pretty cool to to be on the front lines of that. You know what I mean? And um, uh, it was very, very efficient. It was unbelievably efficient. Couldn't believe the opposition.
1: That's what you know. I've actually said it too. So that deployment for us, we the bureaucracy or the pain with ops and maintenance in a fighter squadron is usually kind of a pain, right? Like maintenance is always trying to, they never, like you'll have, you go out there, there's 20 jets sitting on the ramp. You're supposed to fly 12 that day. Two of them break you're like, well, I just want to take another one, right? But maintenance is like preserving the life of the jet over time. They're also managing man hours. But like when deployed, two emerged, singularly focused on the mission. So whatever it takes to get things done, like the bureaucracy, the PowerPoint slides, they still exist, but they're minimized in the efficiency Tends to ramp up. But the, it's, it how seemed, do you think?
0: It, it kind of seemed like a lot of the things that would hold you up in the, in an Afghanistan or maybe an OEF, OAF deployment, whatever, uh didn't, didn't hold us up when we were, we were, we were pushing at the flat. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it was, it was cool to see that those, you know, that those kind of, restrictions were lifted. You know what I mean? They're like, hey, hey man, go and smash these dudes.
1: Yeah. I had uh general Holmes on the podcast who was the air combat commander uh, up until he retired in 2020. And that was one of the questions. Like I asked him and he was like the bureaucracy, right? Cause the bureaucracy was one of those things that was really painful to me. I had a really smart boss, much smarter than me, but he's like, dude, he goes, my opinion is the air force wants like a six or a seven. Like if you're operating at an eight, nine or 10 level, you're the guy who's gonna challenge the system and push the boundaries like that's dumb. Why are we doing that? They don't want you. I'm like a five, so I'm like, hey, we'll we'll hang on to you for a little bit. <laughs> but he his thing was like, Hey, you know, Afghanistan, we got so worried that one civilian casualty would land on the page of New York Times, front page of New York Times, and it would completely change, you know, the way the world thought, the way the world acted with regards to us. And that's that's what drove everything. I remember listening to some of my buddies on the radio who in Afghanistan, you know, they're reading which ROE they're dropping under. They're reading, you know, confirm your cut off, surrounded, no means of escape, you know, imminent threat of being overrun. You know, I mean, there were lawyers on the radio as part of like the nine line to confirm that they could drop. And you're like, what are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. And maybe with uh, ISIS, everyone saw how horrific that that group was. Yeah. Uh, and then you kind of knew it wasn't embedded in a village where maybe this dude's Taliban, mm-hmm. maybe he's not, you know, and if you were anywhere in this area in Syria, you were a bad dude, like, or you should have gotten out of there. It just or associated like was...
0: with a bad dude. Those, I don't think people understand, you know, we forget so quickly, but, like, I don't, I don't think people f- realize, like, what kind of human beings we were dealing with at the time you know in the in that era and um there's a there's a you you remember you so you know kobani and the lcf right yeah yeah so you know those cement silos
1: yeah okay
0: do you know the story behind that no so when when the unit and like special forces and some rangers and stuff were making an assault Pushing down towards Kobani, LCF, this was like the place that they were going to be. Like, okay, this is a ISIS. It was a ISIS stronghold at the time. A Perfect place, you know what I mean? And what they were doing was taking uh, men, women, children, and particularly like men who were uh, conscientious, conscientious like ISIS objectors, or they thought were gay right they take them march them up to the top of those silos and push them off so when those guys got to that place there was a mountain of dead bodies jeez you know what i mean and th- this is the kind of people we were dealing with you know what i mean so that if that's a snapshot of what kind of her- horrific things you can see you know what I mean? I mean these, those, those people were doing it. You know what I mean? That's like that's coming out of a horror movie, man. You know what I mean? So, um, but you know how easily we forget of how how shitty we can be to each other. You know, what I mean? it's
1: like it's man,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, it,
1: yeah. We, we, it's, we it's forget wild. this
0: so so fast, and it's like for guys like you and I. You know, and those things kind of stick to you, and then you're like, okay. We'd be a nicer person, at least, to at least now that I'm not carrying a gun in a badge in water. You know what yeah. I mean?
1: Dude, yeah, it's, I mean, those, that's just like scratching the surface. I, yeah, we had a Jordanian pilot that got shot down while while we were there. And, yeah.
0: Uh, that's the dude that we, got burned.
1: Yeah. I mean, did you see uh, the video? Yeah, I saw the video. It's ugly. Yeah, it's horrific. horrific. Um, yeah. You know, they probably marched him a thousand or a hundred times doing a mock execution. And then they finally, you know, lit him on fire. But it's like that's the, that's the type of people you're dealing with, and you hear all the stories of the Yazidi women and, um, dude, bad, bad, bad stuff. So maybe that helped uh, rip the gloves off a little bit and let you guys operate and remove the, the bureaucracy and the red tape that usually flows with it. You
0: know, it's it's funny after I had met you, um, Justin. Alf, yeah he licked me up with a guy who actually
1: dropped bombs for us really yeah in 2017 i'm trying to think it was drop- if, if we go with the if you give me the months later um when we get off the podcast because you know that was a cycle especially at Shaw. like every it was like bounce between f-16 units you know, us and then like Masawa, then back to Shaw every six months, just kind of cycling and then mixing Spangdalum in there as well. But, um, dude, I was like, I was busy time. Like we, we dropped the most precision guided weapons of any F-16 unit when we showed up and then that record was beat the next time. And then the next squadron beat it and, <laughs> and then, then the next, next squadron beat it. Yeah, it just like, good. dude, it just kept going and going. Like we have this picture of our bomb wall I mean, it's filled, you know, from waist high all the way up to the ceiling. There's like, you know, 14, 15-foot high ceilings. And, uh, do they just – I mean, they painted over it and just did it again. And then they just did it again. Um, it's amazing. I remember taking – I took off one night. We took off the last uh, GBU-38s and GBU-54s, like, on base. Like, we took off nothing. We dropped it. And then when we landed, they were getting more bomb bodies and kits dropped off the of base. But we were just – plowing plowing through it you guys were you, you guys were clearing the rails yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> turn,
0: and, turn and burn right you know like
1: yeah it was uh it was impressive to see the efficiency because again i think that all started with our weapons officer getting called from guy up at Bragg said hey yeah you know, i need you to come up here uh tomorrow or the next day and you know that, that was kind of the the start of how we we got spun up and then you know fast forward four weeks later then we're in it and and dropping. The one, the one joke, too, I, I did participate in a couple of VTCs. Um, I went down to Djibouti a little bit, and so the VTCs are happening. A guy's calling in from, you know, all these different outstations around the world. Yeah. But short sleeve, button down plaid shirt, 5'11", like, tactical pants or whatever pants, you know. It's like everyone looked the same, you know. Yeah. Okay. So. A little beard. Yeah, beard, <laughs> beard, short sleeve plaid shirt, man. Yeah. Uh, out there, there's a lot, of, a lot of good dudes doing some uh, important work out there, so. Yeah,
0: um, the hats off to him man like um uh yeah we wouldn't be we wouldn't be safe without those guys in in, in like the the key players yeah I mean I'm not saying that I'm not downplaying anybody's serving right now or any uh, other this stuff but um I'm only speaking from my own experience of how important it is to have fellows like yourself and fellows like the guys that I used to work with um still doing the good good fight. You know what I mean? And, um, they're in harm's way a lot these days, you know what I mean? But it's, uh, it turned to a low intensity conflict type stuff. If you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Well, hundred percent. And that's, I get people ask me, um, you know, th- there's a lot of stuff in the news today and the media with like how the military is going and wokeism and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and there's a lot of that, right. There's a lot of noise. Um, I think, but you know, like, well, there's no way we'd, we'd win a fight. I do give a lot, I a lot of buddies who are still doing it. A lot of guys who are much smarter than me, much more talented than me, and that's what gives me confidence because I know they're standing, they're still standing on the wall. And like, if the flag goes up and there's complex problems to solve, like I know the guys who are out there that are going to go do it. And I'll I'll be the high speed cheerleader on the sideline saying, "Yeah, you know, go get them! <laughs> yeah, and yeah, go throw them a it, water man. bottle, uh, but yeah, the, <laughs> the pom poms. Yeah, like you guys are great. They're uh, yeah. some really, really good dudes and dudettes that are they're still doing that. I have a lot of faith in. Hey, I want to pivot real quick okay. because we we've, we've touched a little bit um, on it. Playing golf now, like, dude, the fact that yeah. one uh, engineer, which I didn't even ask this too, like, I imagine being in the unit, uh, your engineering background, I could see it getting utilized more than probably in a conventional unit. Yeah, um, you probably able to do some creative stuff so we might have to do another conversation on that but dude from engineer navy navy corpsman green beret yep. a delta force operator and i like, hey dude i'm i think i'm done i'm gonna pivot my my life and i'm gonna go play golf i didn't even mention swimming too like yeah span the game man.
0: i've done it all man i mean i have there's a lot of things i still haven't done that um I hope to to do but um here we are now playing golf for a living and um how you, how'd you get into that I you know I played as a young kid I played I played uh I played a bunch as a young kid and um playing a bunch of these um, I think it's called uh, it's called a uh AJ American Junior Golf Association yeah and it's yeah, like that yeah. they have like a circuit they did that and then um when I was 17 my dad goes hey you wanna you want to enter this tournament you have to qualify for it i said okay so he filled it all out for me this is 1997 okay so just give you a little reference of how old i am Uh, (laughs) uh, he fills it out and he goes okay your your uh your your qualifying date is i think it was like may something so i I go out and play and uh, qualify and he goes okay you gotta qualify again i'm qualifying for the qualifying (laughs) <laughs> he goes, Yeah, you're going to the U.S. Open, and I said what? And I saw, so <laughs> I uh, I qualified. That did 36 whole regional, and then lo and behold, I find myself at Congressional in ninety in 1997. Um, so you know, didn't make the cut, obviously, but um, still, still pretty cool story. And then I did it again in '99, so, um, and then that uh, was in college at the time in '99. And I was swimming in my, in the, I remember the Arizona golf coach was like, hey, you wanna come play golf with us? You can come play with us anytime. So I had an opportunity to actually just kind of like still be engaged with, with golf. And um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, I've been playing since I, I was a kid. And then I took a big, a big time to hiatus. And as you can imagine, in 2000, basically from 2005 to 2012 ish, I didn't play. E five times. Yeah. was drinking beer with your buddies and rolling golf carts. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I got married in 2010 in 2009, excuse me. And, um, my wife, you know, we had moved to Bragg, and I'm in the Q4. So she's like, you gotta, you gotta get out of the house. Cause you're driving me nuts. So I picked up the golf clubs again and I started playing, um, and, and really enjoyed it, man. And and uh, I enjoyed it to the, to the point where it was like, it was a it was a release for me. You know what I mean? And today to to this day, it still is a release. I know I'm a professional I have to treat it a little bit differently. But man, it, it's not a job for me, right? Number like not, it's not like it's not a job. It doesn't define me. But it and it and it and it it gives me great joy to do it. You know what I mean? Even even when I'm playing my worst, which I've played my worst. You know what I mean? I <laughs> still uh, having a great time, man. And, and, um, I think maybe that's perspective. Um, you know, and so like if you rewind, um, in my earlier days, I had a helicopter crash that almost killed me, you know what I mean? So, um, and then I had a vehicle rollover that almost killed me. So like I've had a, I've had a myriad of things that like I've come pretty close to, to death and and uh but now i'm like i'm playing golf for living you know like these young kids are like 22 23 years old fresh out of college throwing golf clubs and throwing a fit and all of stuff i'm like man if you if i could just chew walk one day in my shoes you know what i mean or somebody else's shoes not even mine like just in a different perspective
1: you'd come back with
0: uh with a little bit different perspective on what this game really is you know
1: what i mean well, I think you, well, you probably, your shoes qualify to be, to walk, walk in to see, <laughs> see some shit. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I mean, I don't necessarily need, yeah, exactly. But like walking your shoes, walking yeah, to somebody yeah. else's shoes, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and, and gain a little perspective. Like when you're in the cauldron and a fire, you don't, you don't know where you are. You know what I mean? Sometimes it, it seems like a sea that is in a, in a without a map, you know what I mean? And, um, and when you just step back and look, you know, like you're saying, the 60,000 foot view, you're like, oh, I'm here. I need to go here. My attitude isn't going to get me there yet. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, man, uh, I mean, I'm enjoying every second of it. And um, I've met some great people down here. I've met some, some people that I never thought I would meet um, doing this and, and, um, and, I, and I'm just having a blind student. Uh, just hoping it'll make the PJ tour your sin
1: soon, sooner rather than later. The impression, I, I love the story, man, because from it's again, for a dude to pivot out of the world you are in and to do something completely different is it's not that common of a thing to hear. Right. Like you're like, I know you played and you know, as, as a younger kid. Right. But you've, in my opinion, you've taken a big, big step into a different, different direction, which is, is cool to hear that a lot of guys like, Hey, this is th- what I did defines me in my career. And I, I dude, I love flying fighters. Like it was awesome. Uh, I'll tell stories about it every now and then. Right. But that's not, that's not who I am. That's not the only thing, right. That was an awesome chapter of my life. A lot of like, great things, right. Yeah. But there's, there's more to it than just this. Um, yeah. So well, you know, it's,
0: it's kind of like, is the, is your, is your proverbial book about your life one page, 300 pages, or 3,000 pages? You know what I mean? And yeah. That's something that um, kind of stuck with me as a kid. Somebody told me that. I can't remember. It wasn't my parents. It was somebody, and they were like, you know, you have the opportunity to live your life the way you want to, right? And and um, if you do, if you, if you live your life the way you want to, there's going to be... Challenges, there'll be pain, you'll have pleasure, you'll have all these things, but at the end of the day, you'll do stuff, you know what I mean? And I kind of like resolved myself early on in my life to just do t- 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 stuff, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah good. I could get at it, you know what I mean? And, um, and uh, this is something I've always wanted to do, even when I was a kid, I was like, I, uh, you know, I would tell everybody, I'm gonna go play professional ball for the set you know, the, yeah, um. Had nine eleven 11 not happened, John, I think maybe it would be a different story, but but uh, it did. So, here we are, 43, trying to make it to the PGA Tour, you know?
1: Dude, I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you uh, in a second here, you know, if you found 15-, 16-year-old pressure walking down the street, is there any advice you'd give him? Before I do that, would you be willing to hang around once we wrap up the podcast for a There I Was story? Maybe tell... If you're willing to talk about the helicopter crash, or the rollover, or maybe, you know, one of these, uh, a day in the life, a solo story, uh, trucking across Tajikistan or something sure. kind of crazy. Absolutely. So if, yeah. If you're willing to hang around for that. But yeah, dude, if you found 15, 16 year old, uh, fresh walking on the street, is there anything you would tell him to do different, change something, life advice, and- keep doing what you're doing, man. You did the right thing. it
0: Big- Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't. I, I, I do not regret anything I've ever done. And that's kind of a, people tell me that's a rare saying. And I said, well, and I've gotten that question before, would you tell him something different? And I said, I said, no, I wouldn't tell him because where he's going to go is where is, where he's destined to go. you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that's, that's my answer. Good. No, I oh, wouldn't tell him shit. You're like, what's up? And then
1: <laughs> he wouldn't listen anyways. That's what the guys are saying now. It's like, you know, I don't think I would listen to myself if I yeah, travel back. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, so, I was stubborn when I was 15,
1: 16. Yeah, I still am. Yeah, dude, I know, I know what I'm doing. So, yes. dude. <laughs> dude, I appreciate you taking the time. Join me on the podcast, man. This was fun. Absolutely, um, man. Again, I got to hang around for a There I Was story. So, dude, thanks, man.
0: Thanks, John. Appreciate it, brother.